Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. my great pleasure to have the advice goddess Amy Alcon on the podcast today. Amy writes a weekly advice column called Ask the Advice Goddess, which is published in over 100 newspapers within North America. Amy is also the author of the book I See Rude People, One Woman's Battle to Beat Some Manners into Polite Society. And most recently, which we'll be talking about uh, quite a bit today, is the book Good Manners for Nice People Who Sometimes Say the beep word. <laughs> Amy, it's just such a delight to have you on the, my podcast today. Oh, it's so great to, to be here to talk to you. Um, and, you know, I, I miss having you out here in Los Angeles. Yeah, I miss uh, writing with you. Those were some fun days. They were great days. Yeah. I wanted to start off by asking you, um, you know, I've noticed some common themes in lots of your writings. I thought I would ask you first what, what you think are some of um, the, the common themes, particularly in the, the last two books that you wrote? Um, that's a very good question. You know, I don't really, it reminds me of Elmer Leonard uh, being asked whenever, and just if, in case anyone doesn't know who he is, he's a crime writer. He wrote Get Shorty. He's most famous for that. But, um, you know, people would ask him, what are your books about? And he'd say, I don't know. Ask Scott <laughs> Frank, the screenwriter who wrote, I forget which one. I think he wrote Get Shorty and some other things. And so I don't really think about, you know, the themes in my work. I don't have that kind of overview. But I guess one thing I was telling, I just had a new um, editorial assistant start working for me. And one of the things I explained, and this comes out of um, addiction treatment research, is that um, telling people what to do doesn't make them change, want to change. It makes them either defensive or want to clobber you, depending on when you're doing it. And so... I'm influenced, you know, I use science in all of my work, even though I tried not to make it sound like it came out of the ivory tower, I translate it. Basically, what I do is I translate ivory tower research into understandable language, and then I transform it into advice so people can live less counterproductively, live smarter. And so um, when I do that, um, I tend to use humor and metaphor to show people why their behavior is really not a good idea. Rather than doing that thing that most advice columnists do, which I find really boring also, which is just hammer people and say, do this, do that. I mean, a lot of people already know what to do or not to do, and there's a reason they're not doing it. You know, people are not morons, and I really get tired of how they get treated by like morons by, by um, yeah. many people writing for papers or writing advice. Let me tell you what I see, and correct me if I'm totally off base here. You know, um, I stop Frank. <laughs> <laughs> but let me tell you what I see when I read a lot of your writings. I get the sense that you um, you really are a voice of a lot of underdogs. Um, you really don't like people who are marginalized, people who 
um, get unfairly treated. Uh, am, I, am I right about, about this? It seems to be a very common theme. You are. I, I was a loser as a child. and I, <laughs> I want to hear more I, about that. <laughs> I wrote in Good Manners for Nice People Sometimes Say a Bad Word um, that um, I had no friends until I was 13. And then I'm starting on my next book right now. And I, I sort of looked at that more closely. And I realized that was aspirational. It was really 15. I mean, that's just so horrible. And when you don't have friends... Uh, the the one one of the good things that came out of that is um, a sense of compassion for for people who are left out, you know, the weirdos of society, and also I, I even look for them because now I sort of managed to transform myself. And so when I'm at a party or something, I have this vision where I look around the room and I look for that person who just looks like they want to just disintegrate into the carpet. <laughs> and, and I go talk to them, you know, because I've been that person. And it just means so much when you're that person that someone does that, that they rescue you. If, if you have the social capital to do that, or, you know, if your kids, you, it's really important to teach your kids that. If you have those kids, if you have kids and they're popular, everybody likes them, they do well in soccer and all that stuff, you know, that, that your kids can probably afford to um, adopt an underdog. You know, not as just a charity thing, but to actually be a real friend to them and friend with them, um, where it's it's sometimes um, it, it hurts other kids socially. So, I mean, you do have to think about that. You have to be moderate um, your behavior with self-interest, but also interest in others. Yeah. that Can you tell me a little bit why, though, you don't think you were popular? I feel like we would have been friends at, like, age 12. Like, we would have been, like, like, alone like on the playground. <laughs> Everyone I know, actually, someone said this to my boyfriend everyone you know is weird. And actually, <laughs> everyone I do, I know, and I'm like... They, you call me weird, Amy? No, I know I'm weird. <laughs> but, they're, but they're weird in the sort of like, you know, Oddball. normal society way. They're nerdy and they have some kind of passion in something. Like, really, really, they're really well, passionate about well, why something. Why were you friends with other weird people at age 12? Why did no one like you? <laughs> I lived amongst normal people, and the truth is, okay, I wet my bed till I was 12. <laughs> no, like, I just had that stench of the weird... Yeah you know, the smart, I had red hair. I mean, just everything. And, then, and they also didn't really like Jews where I grew up. Whoa. So um, my dad, we moved out to the suburbs in Detroit. And um, okay. my dad thought we were just like everyone else, which is fine if they think you're like everyone else. But um, being weird and Jewish, my sister did better. She was normal and Jewish. Um, I, I just really had a hard time. But you get this stink on you and you just can't get it off unless your family moves. You know, if you move, you have a chance. And my family, they're still there in that same house, circle driveway. The trees, they know big trees. You know, they, that's one of those developments where they, you know, they just clear cut everything and, and you move in. It's like there's not a scrub of, a scrub of shrubbery. You know, and now you go there, it's like a forest, a prim, primeval forest. <laughs> oh, man. And, and also, um, I, did you um do you feel like you had uh, symptoms of ADHD when you were a kid? I definitely did and um, one of the great things was getting diagnosed and I I like to say I got diagnosed by my friend David Baxter and Terry Rossio's hot tub up in the Hollywood Hill. I love it. was that? People go to doctors. David David Baxter said he, and he had been diagnosed and and he said, "You know, I think you have ADD and you should take uh, you know, you should take medication for it. It would help you." Okay. And he was actually right. But, um, you know, the, the diagnosing of this stuff is so inexact. And I decided I would go to a doctor and fake the symptoms. But it turns out I actually have the symptoms. Right. And, right. And, and I know I do now because um, I was taking – this is sort of like too inside baseball ADHD. But I'll just talk, talk briefly about this because I'd like people to not feel stigmatized about taking medication to help themselves, whether it's from depression or anything else. I mean, really, it is better, you know, chemistry for better living. Um I um, had my, my Ritalin wasn't really working. It got to almost physically painful to concentrate. And so I started taking Mucinex and having this intensely strong coffee and Ritalin to try to somehow be able to concentrate better. And in, in case anyone doesn't know this, if you have ADHD, um, a coffee works on you sort of like warm milk does for other people. You know, I could take, I could have strong coffee and go to bed. But I, I told this um, wonderful psychiatrist I got transferred to, and he said, you know, I think you need Adderall, which is to explain um, um, Ritalin and Adderall are both um, dopamine reuptake inhibitors, but Adderall also pushes a little dopamine out into the brain. And it turns out I really need that because I had the best writing day I had in 20 years, the first hour I took that. 
And also I run around, went around my house. And when you have ADD, okay, so this is a, mis, a misnomer about this, this quote unquote disorder, which I actually consider a gift with some issues attached, but it is not a deficit of attention. You have too much attention. That's the problem. Oh, and wow. so it's like being, uh, you know, attacked by crows, by 16 crows while trying to think to have ADHD. And so after I took Adderall, I looked around my house and I could see things. Everyone was, in, you know, you could see it wasn't like a tornado and I could see, oh, that thing has been on that surface for seven years. Why don't I pick that up and move it? Do you, so, think, do you think that those ADHD characteristics were conducive to your uh, creativity and uh, imagination at all? Great question. Actually, yes. And um, I, I love the work you do on creativity. And I'm often sort of calmed and placated by by um, how open-minded you are about it. And I feel that my ability to pun and to come up with rapid-fire humor and these weird connections and have these weird visions, things I put together, that these things are one of the features of this quote-unquote disorder, which is not a disorder. It's just, you know, I... Um, you know, if I get a parking ticket, I need to pay it immediately or like six months later, my car will be booted. And I just lose, I lose mail. It's like there are bags in my bedroom. Like, oh my God, I, I re-registered my car in July. And then like the sticker had been in my bedroom, the new sticker that expired, you know, like I had the expired sticker on my car. The new sticker was under my bed in a bag. Oh That's God. ADD or ADHD. Wow. <laughs> you know, I mean, I feel like so much of your like, your creativity does come from this amazing ability to you, you do it. And I, I know cause I hang out with you. I've hung out with you like in real time, connect words that you put words together that most people do not automatically associate with each other. And, it's like and ask oil. Yes. Yes. That was one, they, they did a list. The copy editor, David Yance is great. Um, he copy edited my book and he copied it. It's my column. He's a grammar ninja. And they had him put together a list of words that were not traditional. It was huge. You know, apparently, most authors have like four words or ten words. And there were like pages of the stuff of like Aspoil and Selbor. But I love doing that. I see no reason to be constrained by the dictionary. Well, not only that, but you're not, your own head is not constrained by anything. <laughs> so the right. way your mind works is that you have cross-wiring between your executive attention network and your imagination network and your, your, um, your temporal lobe where holds all your memories and everything. I mean, there's no boundaries. <laughs> Right. Well, I'm am, I, am I right? For that. I'm grateful for that. And this is why I feel, and I talk to some kids too, friends, kids who have ADHD, you know, that um, they feel, people tend to feel ashamed if you have something that's psychiatric in nature. And the thing is, they have to call these things disorders because otherwise they can't give you medication for it. And there's, there's this tremendous prejudice against taking medication. Now, I'm not for medicating. Um, there seems to be a, an over-medication of boys. And, um, you know, they've now like the playgrounds, there's, there's all this zero tolerance stuff and craziness, like where they're protecting kids. They basically wrap them in little cotton wool outfits and they want to keep them until they're 40 like that. Um, and so I think that boys don't get to play like they used to and be active like they used to. And boys, you know, and some girls have this tremendous energy when they're kids. I had it and it needs to come out in a healthy way. And since it's not, then you get kids jumping on desks and you and I both, um, study evolutionary psychology. And so you look at our natural environment. I need to take medication to write, which I'm happy to do. I love writing because, mm. and this makes it better because I have what would be probably a perfect hunter gatherer brain. I could watch, do six things at once in a way other people can't, you know, multitasking is not supposed to be very, um, a very effective way to go about life, but I can do it pretty effectively. Um, cause I just notice everything. I'm not trying. Right. And I think that's actually bringing up evolutionary psychology is a good segue into your latest book, if, if I may segue into that. Um, I saw uh, someone wrote a review on Amazon of your book. They said, quote, this isn't your grandmother's manner book. <laughs> uh, it sure isn't. Well, first of all, your grandmother's uh, manner book didn't include um, the latest research in evolutionary psychology um, at the very least. Right. So your book, um, you know, you really do draw a lot on um, the latest science. And you say uh, at one point in your book, quote, our modern skulls house a Stone Age mind. And this is um, – and you start trying to unpack the implications of this. Um, I thought maybe you could tell for our listeners a little, what is the impact on, um, on that uh, for a society that is massively interconnected through technology? Well, I should first say that's a Cosmetis um, – Lita Cosmetis and John Tooby quote, our modern skulls hold – 
has a Stone Age mind. And um, let me backtrack a little to give um, what I figured out about rudeness. So um, I figured out that we are rude because we live in societies too big for our brains. And this is based on the research of Robin Dunbar, the British anthropologist. Dunbar number, yeah. He figured out that the human neocortex has a capacity for about 150 relationships. This is on average. But he found this in numerous societies. He found this in the number of Christmas cards people send, the number of Facebook friends they have. It's fascinating. And it was in hunter-gatherer societies. There, there are army units that are this size. It seems to be a sort of, I hate to use this word, but magic number. And so, and the reason why, um, basically, the problem is that beyond this number, that um, that the people, the civility seems to break down. And the reason is when we know each other, when we all know each other, we're in a consistent society of people who know each other. There are constraints on our bad behavior. So even if you're a total jerk, um, you have to behave well because you're going to see everyone again. And now we live in what I call these vast strangeropolises, and many people can go almost all day without seeing somebody they know. And so when you're around strangers, if they're jerks, they can do anything to you. And this is what's happening. So, and this is what's happening. You, you brought up technology on the internet. We have this cloak of anonymity we have never had. And we got no rule books with the internet or cell phones. We just got this amazing technology. And we are like chimps with our our finger on the button of an info nuke. So all these people who would never say so much as, excuse me, do you know where the asparagus is in the grocery store, are saying horrible things to total strangers on the internet. You know, and if you bring that back to real life, you you say to them, I say to people sometimes who write to me, write me horrible, insulting things, total strangers, never, never encountered them before they read my column or they didn't like something they wrote on the internet. And they, they say, you're ugly, you're a bitch, you look like a man, I mean, horrifying stuff. And and I'm so used to hate mail over the years because I don't shy away from controversy or controversial topics, but I'll say to them, you know, if you wouldn't walk up to a woman in the grocery store and say, you know, hey, wide load, better rethink those Twinkies. Maybe you shouldn't talk to people on the internet the same way just because you can. You know, you need to behave as if you are posting your own real name, even if you can't do that because you're an elementary school teacher who's on a dominatrix website. Right. So so that that's a good point. You know, our brains are wired to manage social interactions with this band of 150 people. Um, so there does seem to be um, – I mean, what do we do in this world of Facebook or this world of Twitter where you have thousands of people listening to your every word? And so it, it, basically your point is like it really increases the potential for rudeness. <laughs> well, there are three things that stop rudeness. And one is not behaving counterproductively yourself. Okay. And I get into – I use behavioral science to explain why we do that, why we do the things we do, why you want to get out of your car – and, and bring out your golf club and smash someone's windshield when they go, you know, they go out and turn the stop sign, even though, what does that mean? You're three seconds later to work, you know, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Uh, but that's, there are evolutionary reasons for that that make total sense because we had adaptations within an environment that was very different from our environment. Now, it was very important to not let people cheat you because it impacted your survival. So anyway, get to getting, getting back to the three things, it's to not be jerks ourselves, to not behave counterproductively, um, to punish rude people, and not everyone can do that. And the other thing, because we live in these societies where we are around strangers, and because that doesn't really work for our psychology, and it makes people feel alienated and it's awful and nobody's looking out for each other. We're we're cooperative, communitarian people. Um, So we need to reach out to strangers, treat strangers like people we know. And the way you do that is by doing small kindnesses for them, which actually is in your self-interest because when you are kind and generous, it actually makes you feel actually probably far better than the person you're helping. Yeah, and there's a lot of research in positive psychology suggesting that's definitely the case. Yeah, Sonia Lemursky does a lot of it. Uh She is really good and really rigorous and writes well, which is always a pleasure. And she does a lot of this work on gratitude. And in fact... Between the time my book was published, and I was writing this op-ed, and somebody, they said, oh, we think we want it, but we need you to support this a little better. The research hadn't been done, but I wrote to her and said, help. And she had just gotten the data back um, and just written this this paper um, about how when people in Spain did kind acts, and these are for people they know, so I think it's much more powerful in what hasn't been tested with strangers, 
I mean, it has to some extent, but not really the way she did this. But she, um, people in an office in Spain, they did kind acts for their coworkers. And the people they did kind acts for were three times more likely, almost three times, 278% more likely to pay it forward. So this, what this tells us is that really, if you, if you do a kind act for somebody, just, you know, put money in their meter, um, look around in a cafe and see the person they're looking around. They're probably, they want to pay a newspaper. You've read yours, stamp and give it to them. It takes very little that you do these things. And this is so, so powerful. And to just give one example of that, in the book, um, my, my ex-assistant, Steph, she and her girlfriend were in Boulder, Colorado, really hot. They see this woman on a bench, older woman looking very not from Boulder. And the woman says to Steph, who's a very kind person, um, could you give me directions to where I can get a Diet Coke? And so Steph, very kind, does this meticulous and everything. And they walk on it, and Steph's girlfriend said, I'm going to go buy her one. And Steph said, no, I gave her great directions. You don't have to do that. No, but I will. And she did, and she came back with this. And the woman was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. It was like the greatest thing anyone had done for her. And here's an act. If you do this for a friend, hey, oh, Scott, you know, we've done this for each other. Oh, I got you a Coke, got you a brownie, whatever. Oh, thank you. That was really nice of you. I mean, it's nice and you appreciate it, but it's not like the heavens just open up and angels breathe on your, on your head, you know, and, and know. that's really what happened with this, with this woman doing a kind act for a stranger. I know. I've appreciated some of your, when you bought me a brownie. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, yeah. So, I mean, this is all very interesting because in, over the course of your book, you just, you really outline so many different domains of rudeness and um, in trying to prepare for this interview, I'm like, well, you know, we only have a certain amount of time, so um, let's pick some of the some of the the ones that might be, um, you know, we can get through. So let, let's why don't we try talk about communication? Oh, that great! Okay? You list you have you've in your book you, you called the big three, right? Of yes. Communication. Um, would you mind to explain a little bit about um, what those big three and why they're so vital to positive communication? Um, they are listening empathy and dignity and listening and empathy are very intertwined. We think that we persuade people by hammering them with the most rational point of view. I'm big on reason and critical thinking, but actually people will just put up a wall to you if you do that because you actually need to make people feel accepted and listened to before they will listen to you. Empathy is a big part of this. So this idea, there's a Fran Lebowitz joke I love. She's one of my favorite humorists. She was influenced by James Thurber, who influenced me also. And she wrote, the opposite of talking is not listening. The opposite of talking is is waiting. You know, like waiting to say, but that's exactly what you can't do. And, and I used to be somebody, I was all about me in conversation. It wasn't out of some venal, hateful thing. Um, I just, in New York, I was starving. And I was always looking to sort of promote myself in case, you know, like, maybe someone could hire me. I, my, you know, my mother always said, you know, like, always be on the lookout for a job, you know. And so I kind of was in conversation. And it made me not connect with people. And so... Um, this guy I quote, he's very good, Mark Golston. He wrote a book called Just Listen. He's a hostage negotiation trainer and a, he's a former psychiatrist. And um, he was great. He talked about this, about making people feel felt, about you know this whole empathy thing. And I, instead of talking, um, decided to start listening. Um, and I went to a party. You have to pre-plan this stuff. This is a big theme, actually, if you talk about the themes in my book, yeah. that we are... We're really imperfect and fallible and everything. And in the moment, you can count on us to do the impulsive and very wrong thing, the, the stupid thing, the counterproductive thing. So it's really important to figure out how to behave before you get in the moment. That's what I did. So I decided I'm going to go to this party. It's an annual thing for journalists, novelists, and pundits. And and I am not going to say anything about myself. And I just talked to everyone about themselves. And I had the best time and really, um, you know, connected with people in a way I didn't when I was, you know, Miss Panic Stricken, you know, trying to sell myself, you know, from remembering the time when I would just, you know, be able to spend a dollar on a glass of water. My friends went up to dinner. I'd show up, you know, dessert and just say, oh, I, you know, not having anything. And I'd leave a dollar for my water, you know, glass of water. It's just was horrible you know so and and it's really important to have something write about my next book which is self-compassion so I look at that stuff I understand why I I can understand it from the viewpoint of look at myself as like there's some redheaded girl in New York in this freezing place you know she's wearing a snowsuit because the heat's not working and she doesn't have any money and 
you know, horrible, horrible. And, um, you know, and look at that girl and understand why she behaved out of fear. But then um, to want to, this idea, like people use fear as an excuse. And so, um, you know, I see things that I'm afraid of um, as things I need to do or change. And I think that that's a really helpful way to look at that, that the things you're afraid of. So just to, to recap these three things, it's listening, empathy, and treating people with dignity. And, yeah. and your examples just encapsulate all those. Yeah, dignity, actually, um, I um, referenced this very interesting um, woman who's a conflict resolution specialist, Donna Hicks from Harvard, um, and she talked about dignity as making people feel that they are valued. That's her definition of dignity, and it's really important. You know, the, um, it's really important that when you are um, arguing with someone or you want to give them some quote-unquote constructive criticism, um, that you don't do it in a way that removes their dignity. And one way that does, and we both, I think you were at the conference, the Evolutionary Psychology Conference, where Pinker talked about this, is doing stuff in front of a third party because we evolved to deeply care about preserving our reputation. And when there's an audience it's like criticism goes turbo. So people who do this, who, you know, they, they um, write some critical email and they CC a bunch of people. This is horrible. If you're not intending to wound someone, um, don't do that. And if you are, let's check your motives, you know, because actually these people who are, who are mean and, you know, cut people off the ankles and this stuff. I mean, they're, they're actually not that smart because the, it is actually people who are giving, but judiciously giving, not the people who just look at you like the shirt off their back and here, they'll ruin my mortgage because you need, you know, $50,000. That, that's dumb. That's what my friend Barb Oakley calls pathological altruism. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's um, altru- quote unquote altruism that is sometimes both harmful to the person helping and the person they intend to help. You know, so you have to be judici- judicious about it, but, but to be somebody who is, open and giving and take risks, takes risks to bring people into conversation when they're left out. This is very important. And it does preserve people's dignity, treating them as if they have value. Very, very important. If you want people to hear you, whatever you're saying, you need to communicate by listening, by having empathy, and by treating people with dignity. And if you're not, if you're attacking people, you're not going to get anything through to them except the fact that they think you're kind of a jerk. This is great. I hope that like some politicians read your book. <laughs> Thank you. I do too. Someone said this in the UK about the the, the communications thing, you know, and um, I sometimes get um, taken for granted, I think, in a way, which isn't to say I have a huge ego about my work because you've been with me writing and I have uh, terrible insecurity. Oh my God, is it good enough? Is this science clear enough? Yeah. But, um, you know, when you write in a way that communicates, um, when you write science in a way that's simple and that uh, basically I really work hard, you know how hard it is, to translate complex science so it's understandable to just anybody on the street, I hope, and then turning it into solutions and then making it funny, people think, oh, well, you know, this isn't serious science because it's not boring. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I don't Like the two have to be incompatible. Yeah, and it really, I just think that many people don't work very hard in their writing. And I, I think that that's wrong. And I think that people are lazy and they just don't learn to write in a way that communicates. And um, the example I gave before, Sonia Lubomirsky, I write her these fan letters when I read her studies. And I say, I know this is boring, but God, this is a joy to read because they are so clear. <laughs> and and her um, her research that... It's well thought out and everything. And it's just, you, you love people who do their jobs in that way. And it's not easy. People don't get to that. You know, it's not like, oh, people just sit down on a computer and bang it out. You know, it takes a lot of reworking. And it takes a certain respect for both yourself, science, and the people who will be hopefully benefiting from it to do enough of the work to make it communicate, to make it right, to not have screwy math. All that sort of stuff. Yeah, and I see. I see you do take a you do take the time to really get that right and get multiple perspectives. I think it's something that really really pisses you off is when uh, people try to uh, say what they want to be true, um, and when it goes against what the science says. And I've seen instances of that where you're you know that it seems or I, I think that really upsets you. <laughs> you know, you it does. you, you want to get you want to you, you're like these are the facts. You know, like it or not, sort of thing. Right. And people will, they will excoriate you. I have, oh my God, if you, I made the mistake of looking by accident on Goodreads, um, <laughs> at, at some of the reviews of my book. 
And your latest uh, one? Oh my god, it's they're horrible. Really, on Amazon, it's mostly likes. No, I know, but somehow, you know, and and really, you know, I wrote in the dating chapter about what we both know that there are strategic differences. This is based on. David Buss and David Schmidt's work that there's strategic differences between men and women um, because women are the ones who get pregnant and they have a higher cost to any sex that higher potential cost. Whereas um, men can have sex and just walk away. And this is speaking of them before the days of child support, but we evolved. This is the thinking we evolved. And so this, you know, sort of cascades throughout, throughout our dating lives. And, um, People people have a problem with my saying what the science says, which is that men and women are different. We have different biology, and out of that comes different psychology. I want to ask you about Marlon Brando. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Because you apparently met him in an internet chat room. I did. This is when I was starving in That's New York. crazy. It was, and that was, that was, I was just so embarrassed. That was where I was, I talked about this before. I was embarrassed about, you know, I'd go out, my friends would be out to dinner and I couldn't afford dinner. So I would just show up afterward and get a glass of water and leave a dollar. And finally, you know, it just, that's humiliating. You just feel terrible. The waitress looks at you like, will you be ordering, you know, like scumbag, uh, you know, tell the so, story about, about Mar- how you met Marlon Brando. So I was going to tell, no, that's why I started to just stay home and I would go in the AOL chat room cause I like conversation. So if I'd have a conversation, I could just get, get a diet Pepsi at the Korean grocery store on the way home, yeah. you know, and sit there and, and talk. And, and so I was being attacked in some rude way by somebody, um, in this chat room and this guy just pops up and defends me in this very chivalrous way. He was the count with an E. And so, and I just saw the way he, he spoke in his, in his um, little defense of me. And I thought, Oh my God, that guy is incredible. So we started instant messaging. And then we, over a period of about six months, we instant messaged, we email. I mean, it's just been all night. It wasn't like anything gross, like a kind of love affair or anything. It was an intellectual love affair, if anything. And we became very close friends. And what was cool for him was, you know, when you're a movie star, everybody wants something from you. And even people who don't want to want something from you, they treat you in a weird way because you're famous. Yeah. It's just, um, you, you you have to question everyone's motives. And I was one person whose motives you didn't have to question. We had a deal with De Niro then. And I was like, uh, whatever. You know, and I mean, I was grateful that they gave us this deal, Tribeca Films, but I wasn't excited that he was a movie star. It's a guy who's like, you know, it's his job and he does it well and everything. And, um, you know, and so I think that he saw that, that I wasn't into this stuff. And then what happened was I was still right out of college. I would produce commercials. I stopped doing that. I was doing short films for like Comedy Central. Like I did um, a mockument, three mockumentaries with spinal, like spinal tap, but with monkeys, mm-hmm. you know, dressed up in like a red set and comb bra, this monkey with a blonde wig and everything. And, you know, Jim Sheridan did my left foot was talking about my left paw and all this stuff. They were fun. Anyway. Um, so after I did those, I had to go shoot the last commercial I ever did for Tom McCann shoes with the talking duck in California. And so this guy I was talking to online. I, I sort of knew it was a man. I didn't, we didn't really talk about that, but, um, he said, Oh, I live in Los Angeles. I want to meet you. And we talked on the phone. It was like the voice of God, you know, and, and he told me his name and I said, oh, that's so funny. And I had actually just been in Italy and they had no books in English. And I ran out of my books. And so I read, I never would read something like this. I read his autobiography and I'm like, well, oh. and some of the stuff he was telling me on the phone sounded really familiar. He said he lived on Mulholland and he really liked Jews and stuff like that. He admired Jews. You know, I had one friend in LA and he lived in Mulholland and across, and he used to joke he lived across the street from Marlon Brando. So I knew that road. And so I sort of guessed before he told me, it was sort of amazing, but he just was, you know, to, to know that I didn't have any kind of weird designs or anything like that. And I didn't care. We were real friends. And I would tell him when I thought the same way you do with any friend that I thought he was doing something, you know, untoward. And he would sit on the phone. He'd make calls to make me laugh as a British lady's maid. And I, my job was to not laugh so much that I blew it, you know, <laughs> all the gas company or whatever. It was really, he was incredible. And what I, um, they're doing a film actually um, about him now and he was so, he knew so much about science and he invented things and um, he, he loved poetry and literature and he loved um, looking things up. He'd call me at three o'clock in the morning about Madame Cheng, the Chinese pirate. You know, I, I can always go back to bed. So that wasn't a big deal. We liked talking. He'd analyze my voice as I got on the phone to decide what my mood was when I answered how I said hello. He must, have, was, been, he must have been quite old when you met him. Um, I don't really know. And he died while I was in Paris for the summer, unfortunately. But, um, 
Yeah. I think that um, I think that it was nice for him to be friends with somebody who he had a pretty good sense, just liked him for him, and had no idea it was a famous person she was talking to. And I just, I mean, I'm more impressed by this guy Anthony Damasio, yeah. or who writes is it Antonio or Anthony? Antonio. Antonio. Yeah, I'm reading um, Descartes. Error. Whatever brain. Error. Right now, and you know, and I, I'm more of a fangirl for people like that than I am for yeah. you know, actors just a job you know and if they do it really really well that's that's cool but yeah, it's not yeah. I'm not any more impressed than I am the you know I'm impressed by what you do and, and the way you look in very um, open-minded ways but rigorous um, scientific ways at um, different ways of seeing intelligence and creativity so and I basically that way with all my friends I'm, I have like a human crush on them I think like oh they're you know women I think like Oh, you're beautiful and you're smart and you're doing such great writing. And, you know, cause my friends mostly are writers or professors, you know, I, I just am impressed by people as, as humans. Absolutely. Um, can we cover another domain of, I found a very interesting serious illnesses because there are lots of ways that as friends, we think that we're really helping people, right. And the way we say things and frame things, but you, you say that some of the, some of those things can actually backfire. Um, well, you're talking about when people want to help people who are yeah. sick. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. I had a friend, Kathy Sipe, dear friend, who died of lung cancer. And, um, for example, with Kathy, um, you know, people, people will say things when you're, um, when you, they hear about your diagnosis that are sort of horrible. And, and, and that's, that's a thing that's very human to do. You want to say something and you just reach for the thing. You think like, oh, how great that you're so thin. Yeah, because chemo is making me throw up 40 times a day. (laughs) And that's not a good thing to say. And with Kathy, she believed in modern medical care. She had great doctors at Cedar Sinai, and um, but people persisted in sending me these like you know she drinks the juice of twelve you know mushrooms from the tree of the like in this bog and then stands on her head for half an hour. She you know her lung cancer will just go away. And they wanted yeah. me to tell her this, and it's like here's a person who believes in science. This is just you know you don't force this stuff on someone. And really, what people don't really realize is that when your friend is sick, I mean, I'm not very grown up. I, how do you tell somebody? I was saying, you know, in the book that um, that um, what, I'm sorry to say I'm sorry. I say this if you have a flat tire. So how is that appropriate if you have cancer? And I never really knew what to say. But what I did was show up. And that's the thing. Show the hell up. Bring a casserole. Figure out what they need. You know, go to their pot dealer for them. Mm. Don't say the worst thing you can say is, if there's anything you can do, this is like saying, like buying like a sheep, you know, you say, um, okay, I'm going to go, you, you figure out, they have a dog. I bet they need dog food. Say, I can go to the pet store, you know, pick stuff up for you. Tell me what you need. Or maybe they're too tired to have contact with you. Oh, and don't expect people with cancer to email you back or some other disease. Oh my God. It's hard enough for people in the best of health to keep up with their email. You know, that's another thing, you know, find out, you know, call their family member, call a friend, say, what do they need? and like help them do that, but really just show up. They don't want to talk about cancer, by the way. Kathy didn't want to talk about, she talked about cancer all day with like doctors and nurses and people stabbing her with sharp sticks, you know, in in medical facilities. She wanted me to come over. So I'd sit with her and watch everybody loves Raymond. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. Um, Also, I want to talk about apologies. What are the four parts of like, of an apology? First, you know, you really have to recognize that you're wrong. I mean, this is really important and you have to recognize and admit it to yourself. You have to be honest and people think that apologizing is a sign of weakness, but it's really a sign of strength. So this is, this is something where where a lot of people go wrong. Um, And so if you can do that, it's actually, it cleans things up for both you and and the person who is, you've wronged. Very, very important. Expressing remorse is very, very important. Yeah. Um, because if you aren't sorry that it happened, yeah. you know, it's going to happen again. You have to let them know and you have to know, let them know why you were wrong. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, you know, not, not just, um, oh, I'm really sorry. I'm wrong. You have to actually seem like it was a problem for you that you were wrong. Right. And then, um, the next thing is pledging that it won't happen again. Now pledges, they, they go over better if they come with cash. Um, yeah. and I don't mean you're going to bribe your friend, but for example, you know, that if you do something um, to someone, um, you're late and it screws up their dinner party or something like that, that you give them some kind of gift. You put out some money, you buy them some flowers or, you know, you spill something on their furniture, 
you, you know, you offer to make good and maybe a, a good plus. So it's like good with a little extra on top. So, you know, if you, um, you know, if you did something, somebody buy them flowers, it's, it's just, it's putting out, it's, it's putting your money where your mouth is showing that it means enough to you to repair the friendship. You value it enough, the friendship, the relationship to go out of your way to give them some, you know, mending gift. That's very important. And then, you know, and then making amends, you know, and, um, and, and that, that's part of some of that. I sort of like, uh, you know, went into some of that just now with this, um, you know, and, and you should figure out, um, you know, the, how to make up for what you did to somebody, you know, figure it out. You, you, and you can't unhurt a person's feelings, but you know, that's the thing where you, it's like, you can say, I'm sorry. And then you can say it again with flowers. You know, I call this actually in the book, the baker's dozen of reparations, give them what you own, plus a little extra on the top. As I was saying, it's like a goodwill surcharge. <laughs> and, 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 and actually, so we can't always make amends. And so I'm for finding yourself, like if you do something rotten to somebody in traffic and you realize like, oh, you know, that was not fair. They didn't deserve that. I had a bad day. And you realize that, um, you know, I say when you put some feel bad into the world, um, that, um, you need to, even if you can't find that person they've driven away, you know, do something nice for somebody else. Like buy a homeless guy a sandwich, you know, wash the elderly neighbor's car, you know, do something. And I actually, I have, you know, talked about free speech before, when people are rude to me um, on the internet, um, you know, they write me and they say something rude. Yeah. Um, I will ask them to give money to the fire.org, which is a free speech defending organization on campus. And sometimes people do, and that just sort of rocks, you know, and it really does show that they really are sorry because, you know, they're, they're willing to put their money where their mouth is. Right. So you're all about free speech, but you're not, you're not about um, someone free speeching um, on their cell phone when it's on speaker. In a that's public not, right, that's right? not. And so, for example, I said Rebecca Solnit is a sniveling idiot. So, you know, that is not cool for me to say, like, if you're in a grocery store or whatever, to give the grocery store example, for me to just say to some person right off the bat, but she wrote an op-ed, and I'm responding to her op-ed in a funny way, you know, and, and so it's acceptable to have debate, but you have to debate, you know, my mother did this, you know, or she was you know, criticizing some, debating with one, some woman about, about her political choices. And my mother, oh my God, she could like, I mean, she's a, a, an amazing debater. She won debates in college, at the university of Michigan. And, wow. um, and I said to her, that's not fair. It's like debating with a bunny. You, you don't get to do that. You know, there has to be yeah. some sort of fair game, but cell phone conversations. They when, drive, I've been with you. It's, it, it is drive it driven. You for an 18th street cafe where they yes. mercifully yes. have a no cell phones policy. Yes. yes. So, I would get down because I'm tall. I'm tall. I've red hair and I wear high heels up about the shower. So I would bend down to their level so I wouldn't be, you know, intimidating an alpha and say, just whisper and smile and say, excuse me, they have a no cell phones policy. They'd like you to take your calls outside. Mm-hmm. And people would usually do that because here's what I'm doing. Instead of telling them what to do, I am simply telling them a fact. When you tell someone what to do, <laughs> they want to clobber you. They don't want to change. I'm telling them a fact and I'm not doing it in a way that assaults their dignity. Like, Hey, you know, why don't you shove or, you know, or in a way that just intimates that they're rude. So this allows them to just be a person who wasn't mindful at the moment and to go outside. And they often mostly did that. Um, and this is something I use in my neighborhood. I live in Venice, California. I'm very, very close to the street. People come out here. It's just amazing. It's like, we're not a Hollywood set people. These are actual real houses and two in the morning, people in them are sleeping. That's why they're dark. People come out, they open their convertible top and they have one of those fabulous sound systems. They will blast the hell out of that sound system. One, two in the morning, you know, and it's like, and believe me, it's challenging to do this, but you go out and you say like, Hey, you know, excuse me, but, um, we were really close to the property, to the property line here. And actually we hear everything, you know, and people will then say, I'm sorry. If you come out, you say like, what the hell were you thinking at two in the morning? Which is exactly what I'm thinking. Actually, I'm thinking like, what was your mother doing with the sailors when she was supposed to be teaching you manners? If you say that to someone, they might shoot you. So whereas the music was just a problem before, then you become the problem. The noise increases. So you're now a problem for your neighbors too. You, you made things a lot worse. So this is a lot about, you know, the stuff in my book is a lot about, um, let's look at how we evolve. We evolve to defend against people cheating. And one important thing I say is that rudeness is a form of theft. Yeah. And this is important because we do not evolve around strangers. 
So we, we don't have, you know, there's sort of a 404 error like you get on the internet when it's yeah, like there's a stranger doing something to you. So, um, but the way to take action against them, we, none of us like to be robbed. That's our cheater detection module, you know, coming up. And so, um, when we can see rudeness as theft, like people, the neighbor who plays their stereo really late, they're stealing your sleep. The person on a cell phone on the pharmacy line, you can't go anywhere else to get your pills. It's not like you can go to the grocery store. They're stealing your attention. Yeah, you know, yeah. all real rude people are stealing your peace of mind. You know, it just makes life ugly and horrible. So if we understand that we're being robbed, we can get mad enough to stand up to what's effectively social thuggery. Social thuggery. Wow. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, your final chapter, last question. You know, your final chapter is dedicated to ways you can make the world a better place for others claiming that that's the legacy we, we leave behind after we die. What simple things can our listeners, can my listeners do to leave a positive impact on the world? Oh, I love this question. This is great. This is your moment. <laughs> it, it is. Well, it's really important to me. Yes. Remember that the pursuit of happiness is the wrong way to going to go about getting it. And that, that what seems to be the case is that the way to be happier is to look for, to, to inject meaning into your life. And, and believe me, you know me, I'm libertarian and I'm not some commie saying, look, let's all wear paper shoes, you know, yeah. I give the Ferrari to the Goodwill. Um, I'm not like that. I like if you have a Ferrari and it makes you happy. But the thing is to have meaning is to do kind acts for others. And really you will be much happier. And um, there's an example in um, one of Sonia Lubomirsky's studies where she talks about, um, MS, peer counselors for MS, for multiple sclerosis, that they, you know, this is a research speak, but that they, um, ed, after a month of counseling other patients as volunteers, that they were like seven times globally happier than the people they counseled. And it's so true. So it is in your self-interest to live meaningfully. And that means being bigger than just yourself, giving to other people. Um, it, it really, really does feel good. And this is very important going back to how we live in these vast strangerhoods. This makes us rude because we are around strangers all the time. We can do anything to them if we're rude. And so what's really powerful is to do good for others, but especially others who are strangers. It's really, really important. And you can get in the habit of this and you'll, you'll feel so good. And this is, um, I forget the guy's name. Um, there, there's, it's, it's a classic social science um, paper referencing Saul Alinsky, actually. It's about small wins that, you know, if someone says cure poverty, well, that's too big. So you just go like, oh, I'm going to go watch the honey boo-boo dashians on mm-hmm. TV. Um, I mean, or whoever you watch on TV, Jeopardy or something. But if someone says, okay, there's a homeless guy in your block. Do you have anything in your refrigerator you could give him? Um, you can do that. And that actually makes you feel so good. And if people will just try, say that you decide, I feel that basically that our cover charge for being a human and living in this world should be one kind act a day. So if you try to do one kind act a day, I would, I mean, I'm guessing that everyone who does this, because this is, you know, sort of born out in studies that you will feel so good from that that you'll want to keep doing it. And then the, there's really wonderful research um, by Haight and Elgo, Jonathan Haight and Sarah Elgo, that um, I referenced in the book about how we are so inspired by other people doing good. We, we see them, we hear about them, even telling stories, even if you link to stories on the internet about people doing wonderful kind acts for strangers or people in need, um, that this this inspires people to do kind acts. So like the, like the friend, um, like Steph, my, my ex-assistant and her girlfriend who bought this stranger a Coke, do these little kind acts and, and you know what they are. For Here's an example. I don't mean to be, it's not self-aggrandizing. It's just a thing that you, you notice these things. Okay, my car, I have a tiny Honda Insight from 2004. It looks like it was parked in Appalachia for six months because I never get to the car wash. I barely leave the house anymore. You know, and so I am used to this thing of like, you know, you're driving smart and you think like, I have to pull over. I'm going to kill someone and wash off your windshield. This woman just stops like six o'clock in the morning. She's doing the thing that I do with a plastic bag on her windshield. And I thought like, oh my God, but I live here. So I go, I get Windex and I bring it out to her in paper towel. And she just was so grateful and happy. She was happy. You know, I gave her a bag to put the paper towel in so she wouldn't, there's a nice car, so it wouldn't soil the car. It's just little things like that. Notice what people need. Get in the habit of noticing strangers and their needs and doing little things for them. Look for the person. When you're pulling out of a space, don't just pull out of the space. 
look around to see if there's somebody looking for space and tell them you're leaving as you're walking to your car. Oh my God, just those small things. They make such a difference in both how you feel, how other people feel. And then ultimately, because this catches on as Sonia's research shows, Sonia Lubomirsky, you know, three times more likely people were at this office to pay it forward. And this is when people they knew did kind acts for them. And it's just so much more powerful when strangers do it. So if we all do that, it really is a way to make the world stop feeling like a vast strangerhood and feel like a just a really, really big neighborhood. Thank you, Amy. That was a great message to leave on. Um, thank you so much for uh, taking this time to be on my podcast. My pleasure. I loved it. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as informative and thought-provoking as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can go to thepsychologypodcast.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.